There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was losing control of my life because I remember looking at the window, looking in the sky and saying, God, what's going on? What's going on, God? Like, I can't. I'm lost. I go. I can't see your light. I don't know what's happening. What's going on? Just looking in the sky, just trying to figure out what is happening. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. This week on the podcast, we're joined by Kat McCrory, who is Deputy Investigations Editor here at The Times. We wanted Kat to talk about the work she'd done last year with Neil Betty to uncover problems with heart surgery at one of our local hospitals. Today's topic, heartbroken. First, if you haven't read their stories, you can check out the work at tampabay.com heartbroken. We'll also include the link with the podcast. This is some tremendous work, people, and there has been like an amazing reaction to their work. So um, we want to tap first just to get Kat to talk back, cast to kind of how this whole story came up and tell everybody a little bit, in case you haven't read it, what they uncovered. Sure. Um, so we initially got the tip um, that something was kind of awry in the Heart Institute back in November of 2017. Um, one of the reasons I was included on the tip was because I used to cover health and medicine for the hospital. So I had written some stories about local hospitals and, you know, people knew that they could, could send them my way. Um, so we got a tip, but it was pretty vague. Uh, it was pretty ambiguous. It was just kind of alerting us to the fact that there had been some interesting personnel moves that one of the surgeons, um, in the heart surgery unit at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital wasn't performing surgeries anymore. And the language uh, surrounding, you know, his removal from the operating room was was kind of unusual. Um, was this like a phone call or an email? It or? was an email. Okay. It was an email. Um, so it, it just kind of struck me as interesting. I mean, um, All Children's is this revered uh, local children's hospital in our area. It had forged this partnership with Johns Hopkins a few years ago. And, you know, after that partnership uh, came together, I think, you know, the the reputation really only got better. And people just assumed that this is a great hospital. And there was no reason not to assume that. You know, it was a very good hospital before the affiliation with Hopkins. But we had kind of been hearing some rumblings that maybe the partnership wasn't going as well and that there were some concerns about different departments. So this tip really piqued our interest. So, I mean, like... I'm assuming that you get a ton of tips yes. all the time. <laughs> um, what is it that makes you jump into one? Like a, in general, to, we'll come back to heartbroken for a second, but I'm wondering what makes you decide this is something that's worth it and 
you know, are how do you spot check along the way to say to yourself, okay, this I I'm gonna cut 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 off. This one's not worth it. This one is right. I mean, I, I think some of it with this tip in particular was just that it kind of jived with some of the other things we had been hearing from sources that some of the departments were really having some problems, um, and maybe even as a result of policies that the Hopkins people had put into place. Um, you know, as a matter of policy, I, I try to return as many of these calls and emails as I can. Um, and when you're talking to people, sometimes you can get a sense um, for whether or not it, it feels A, real, and B, something you can really run out and prove. Um, and there was just, you know, something as I continued to talk to this tipster by email and then by phone um, that really kept me intrigued. That's a good lesson, I think, too, because I think you do that, too, Lane, where you like you don't um, you don't decide just on the on the first phone call or email that something is worth it or not. You do you do some reporting and decide whether you're going to keep going or not. Oh, yeah. And I try to call everybody back, too, just because you never know, even if that tip doesn't pan out, they might tell you about something else or somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Did they ask for anonymity from the beginning? Your tipster? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so then it goes from there. What to walk people through sort of where you guys went? Uh, as far as the reporting goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so from then on out, I, it was just a matter of, okay, well, this is interesting, but how how do we start to prove this? How do we start to really explore what, if anything, had happened? Um, and that's kind of the the scouting phase, you know, that we refer to that as we'll we'll take a week or two to scout out a tip and see if it goes anywhere. Um, so to that end, we started just calling as many people who had any type of affiliation with this heart surgery unit as we could find. So these are employees, employees, exactly. Current and former, you know, so looking at people's <laughs> LinkedIn pages, looking at Facebook pages, uh, when we got in touch with somebody being sure to say, Hey, who else should we be speaking to at the end of every conversation? So that there was always just this growing mm-hmm. list of people, um, and in this kind of scouting phase, we were just hearing the same thing over and over. It was remarkably consistent, um, which was that there were many, many problems with the surgery. Surgeries were going wrong. Children were having to go back into surgery um, unexpectedly because surgeries had gone wrong, uh, you know, and that children were dying and at a much higher rate. And when you start to hear the same thing over and over from people who aren't necessarily talking to each other, um, you know, as a as a reporter, just it makes you think that uh, maybe there is something to this. Did you get any blowback early on from editors about unnamed sources? Like all the people you were talking to were like, yeah, but don't don't quote me. Uh, not not necessarily early on because we knew it was going to be a marathon and and not a sprint, you know. So I think the thinking was let's just talk to as many people as we can. Let's try to get as much information as humanly possible. And then we'll get to a point where we can decide how many people we need on the record. Um, you know, I, I felt like in, in this case there were a lot of people who had a good reason to request anonymity. A lot of people were... We're very fearful of retaliation. Um, Hopkins is a big institution here. And it's not just that it's a big institution in the Tampa Bay area. You know, it's a, an internationally known uh, brand in medicine. And it has one of the top med schools. So you've got to think they've got their people kind of all over the world. Um, you know, so we kind of just moved forward with with an open mind um, and, and let people talk and figured we would deal with that later. 
So then you had to figure out, then you had to get evidence that there was a problem and there had been a problem. And that was not easy. No, no. <laughs> um, a, a lot of what made that hard was that it didn't really live anywhere in the public record. You know, this, this would have been a lot easier if all these parents had filed lawsuits, but that wasn't the case. There were no lawsuits to turn to. Because a lot of parents didn't even know what right. was really going wrong there. Right. right? Um, you know, the state agency for healthcare administration had not been there and had not uh, dinged them for doing things wrong, you know, so there were no inspection reports to turn to. Um, you know, so we were largely just listening to people kind of give us anecdotal evidence, um, which is all good and well, but that's really hard stuff to, to use, right? Um, so as we started to, to move from, okay, we need, to, we need to get some of this stuff on the record, we need to figure out what of this stuff we could use with, we started moving from kind of talking to uh, professionals and, and people in, in the medical world to finding parents and talking to them because parents had their children's medical records. How did you find them? And and that was a document they could give us. Um, There are all different ways to find patients. Uh, One of the the best tools for us was Facebook. Um, I guess in in the digital age for a lot of families, you know, when they have a child who is going through a major surgery or whatnot, for them it's easier to create a Facebook page and put the updates on Facebook rather than to call every member of their family to Mm -hmm. say, my child went into surgery, my child came out of surgery, everything's okay, or everything's not okay. So you could do very targeted Facebook searches. And in many cases, these pages were open to the public because families wanted whomever, you know, Uncle Uncle Joe, who they hadn't spoken to in 10 years, to be able to access the page. But you could do that on Facebook, you could do that on LinkedIn, uh, not LinkedIn, on um, GoFundMe. So Um, what would you search? We were just... Searching for Johns Hopkins, Heart Institute, uh, surgery, different types of surgeries based on the the various types of heart defects. Um, You know, and sometimes we would find a family that we thought had gotten a heart surgery. And it wasn't a heart surgery. It was a, you know, diaphragmatic hernia surgery or something else. And and we would apologize and say, sorry to bother you. Um, You know, but that that was a way to really scout out families. A lot of families were very open with what was going on on Facebook. So one of Lane's questions was whether it was harder for you to confront hospital officials or deal with these families. I think in some cases, right, you're telling them things they had no idea that had gone on. They didn't realize. Yeah. So yeah, I presume it's the family part, but I don't know. Do you enjoy no. the, the beating up on the officials? Part? No, no. Um, <laughs> no. I, it was it was definitely harder to have these discussions with with the family that and I'm not saying it was easy to have the discussions with the hospital frankly but um you know with the families uh, here one of the things that we had to overcome if I can back up for a second was this is a story about heart surgeries right and most people think pediatric heart surgeries that's an incredibly hard procedure most of these kids must die um, but when you look at the data you know 97 percent of children in Florida who have a heart surgery, survive the heart surgery. Um, so, you know, in, in many instances when parents had taken their children for heart surgery, you know, even if it was a, a procedure that the risk was was relatively low, some of them just assumed, well, it's heart surgery. You know, there was this, this risk anyway, and of course there was that risk, but they weren't uh, informed. 
you know, to the extent. Um, I think most of us wouldn't be. That a I think most of us would, would assume yeah. that, you know, that it's such a hard surgery that. Right. When you want to trust the doctors. Of I mean, course. inherently, right? You're a parent. You're turning your child over to this stranger. You want to believe and they're going to do the one of the, the most stressful job. moments of your life. And, you know, many mm-hmm. of the families that we spoke to, there were few people in the families who spoke English, you know, so they were Spanish-speaking families. They were having difficulty communicating with the doctors and the medical professionals as it was. Um, you know, and, and some of them after their children died, they just couldn't, it, it was such an emotional burden, you know, to continue to, to think about it and, and probe that, you know, they just said, well, it, it's in God's hands and this happened and the doctors said it was a risky surgery and I'm going to try to move on with my life, you know, and then reporters show up and say, well, actually it's part of a pattern that's pretty devastating and, and, and traumatic, in and of itself. Well, then it also makes the parents, and I think one of the most painful parts for me for reading your series was the dad who had been told not to take the daughter there. Mm. And then he, and he was like, if he'd known, you know, and because you're not only like reopening the wound, but you're all of a sudden introducing guilt because they feel like, what if I had done something different? Why didn't I ask that question? Why didn't I, you know? Mm. And, and I think to me, thinking about you going through that just hurt my heart. Like literally, mm. like that must've been really difficult. I think many of those families did feel a, a certain level of guilt, or at least if, if not that, they were just questioning decisions that had been made, questioning whether they, they pushed hard enough for information. And I mean, it's not it's it's not their fault. This stuff is really hard to understand. And, you know, there were so many other things going on in so many cases. Um, but there, these are it brings up unsettling questions, you know, for parents in that situation and just parents in general. When you're going through this, are you you talk about a project like this to me it's like it's in it's in a lot of different parts and I and I wonder whether you attack it that way obviously there's that that initial fishing and then and then you actually you guys had to do this enormous document um dump mm-hmm. figure out what was there to try to compare these hospitals and then you have reaching for real people who are affected and then you have the confrontation with the hospital officials and and you know challenging them on some of this I mean I do you do you do you go through that in your head? I mean, you have this process that sort of keeps you on the on a track, right? Well, we didn't we didn't intend for this to be uh, a year long series um, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, we we wrote uh, a story in April um, that kind of got everything rolling. You know, early in 2018, we were able to confirm with the family that, uh, you know, they had taken their their daughter there for a heart surgery and the surgeons had left a a small surgical needle in her chest and the parents told us they were never made aware of that. Um, Well, well, they weren't made aware of that until after the child was discharged, that they went to a a follow-up meeting um, with a different doctor who was, you know, perusing the medical records and said, well, you know... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are aware of the needle, right? And the mom said, the needle? Um, 
and, <laughs> no, it's yeah. like Lane is shaking her head. I am too. I'm just like, I can't believe that so, you have so, so much trust here. Well, then the, the mom and dad, you know, rushed their child back to the hospital. They didn't live particularly close and they demanded that this needle be taken out. And in their telling of the story, um, the surgeon said, there is no needle. Go home. There's nothing we can do. Flash forward a couple weeks later, the child needs another heart surgery, not specifically because of this needle, but the child needs another heart surgery. And when surgeons at a different hospital go in, there is the needle and they and they take it out. Um, so we were able to, to get that piece of the story that seemed very serious to us. And we use that as a jumping off point to have a conversation with the hospital. Um, you know, and we said to the CEO, look, we, we, we have this in the medical records. But we're also hearing that the problem is much bigger than this, you know, that, that the mortality rate has gone up. What can you tell us about this? And at this point, we didn't, we didn't have it in the data. You know, we mm. didn't have it with, with sources in a way that we could publish. And the CEO said to us, well, we've experienced some challenges. The word he used repeatedly was challenges. Um, and he said our mortality rate has gone up. But we've, we've taken care of the problems. You know, we've self-policed our way out of it. I think that was another direct quote. Um, and we said, okay, uh, can we see that data though? We're really interested in, in seeing that data. And you're saying your mortality rate went up, but how much? And you're telling us that you had another hospital come and evaluate your heart surgery program. Can we see that report? And, you know, they said no to all of those requests as is their prerogative. They are, a, you know, a private not-for-profit hospital. Um, but it just didn't seem like the end of the story, frankly. And, you know, we, we published that piece about the needle um, and that child, Caitlin Whipple. Um, and after we published that, I just got an inpouring into my inbox of people saying, keep keep digging because the story is much bigger than this needle. It's such a good, uh, it's a cautionary tale, I think, about where journalism is today because so many people have to stop with the trust us. You know, like, yeah, everything's mm. fine over here. Um, so one of... One of uh, Lane's questions when we were thinking about talking to Kat was like, what have you learned about yourself through this process? I'm really glad that a little birdie told me that that might be a question. <laughs> so you could think about it. <laughs> so I could give it some thought. Um, I think I, I learned a lot about myself as a, as a journalist and a person. I mean, I'm glad I thought about this question. It's a good one. Um, out of any story I've, I've ever tried to report, this was the hardest um, there were so many roadblocks, you know, initially we didn't have the data, then we had the data and we didn't have a methodology. People were too afraid to, to speak to on the record. Yeah. Parents didn't want to talk to us because for many of them, it was just, it was too raw. It was too emotional. It was too hard. And it seemed like at every turn, there was going to be no way to get the story. And as journalists, sometimes we get tips, we jettison them, um, because it just doesn't seem like this is doable and our time is limited and we kind of move on. Um, but in, in this case, you know, myself, Neil, my reporting partner, um, Eve, the photographer uh, working with us, my, my editor, Adam, I mean, everybody just had a feeling that this was going to be worth us continuing to push. And we just needed to be really persistent and keep going. And I think we all kind of had to summon this persistence that maybe we didn't know that we even had. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I was glad to, to learn that that was there. <laughs> what was the moment in the reporting where you were finally like able to go home and go, okay, we got this. I'm going to be able to do this. Oh my gosh. Um, not until 
the end, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, we looked at the story, we would kind of say as a, as a three-legged stool in a sense. You know, there were, there were different pieces of it. Um, there was the data, and the story kind of had a data spine. And that was we were crunching, you know, millions of, of hospital records. Yeah, 27 million hospital admissions you guys looked at. A lot of I them. Can't even, wrap your heads them. around that, people. I can't even yeah. imagine. I recommend that everybody, every reporter get a, a reporting partner who is brilliant and, uh, and a data guy because Neil is both of those things. Um, you know, but there was the, the data piece of it, we, the data spine, you know, but that in itself isn't enough to build a story off of, you know, you need those personal stories. Um, you need to humanize it. So that was kind of the second piece of it, the patient stories. And then the third piece that we really wanted to understand was what had changed inside the hospital. What did the hospital know? What didn't the hospital know? Um, because we were hearing, uh, you know, that, that frontline workers had been raising concerns about this for years, and they had really been falling on deaf ears. Um, and it was really important for us to get at that piece, too. Um, so the data started to come together, and we started to see these patterns that, you know, were like, oh, okay, I think we got the data part. And we worked for months, you know, but we were able to get really compelling family stories, and, and that piece started to come together. Um, but we were pushing till the end to try to figure out kind of the internal workings of the hospital and the internal policies because that didn't live in any type of a record that, you know, was easy to get. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the story. So um, people should know that Kat is one of the strongest narrative writers at the paper. I mean, she's a really tremendous storyteller. It's very kind. Who Maria. also happens to be just an amazing uh, investigative reporter. So she's she's one of those. Um, you can hate her now. Um, <laughs> but like, so you, you know, you got, I know you talked about whether you could find a family that would illustrate all the challenges and, and, and you ended up feeling like there was better to, to, to not so much lean into one family, but put some examples and then of course weave in everything. Talk about how you kind of made, so you got the three-legged stool. How do you make sense of this? Yeah. And how do you turn that into a story that flows and doesn't get people all confused? We wrote 18 drafts of this story. Um, I think that's where we landed. Um, if that number is, is wrong, it's it's low. <laughs> so, and it, it, it People had, on the other end now are like, 18 drafts. All right. It had all different, you know, it was it was an evolution. Um, when I sat down to write the very first draft, it was chronological because that's just how my brain works. And I wrote a lot of words in chronological order. And um, they were words, you know, and it was the, the, okay. the story. They were words. Um, which was better than no words. That's what I kept saying. Well, you know, a couple thousand words is better than none, right? Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the structure for the story. But that's just kind of how I like to spit everything out to see what we're working with. Um, in this case, we took a, a, a very traditional uh, investigative structure here. I mean, we could have done something that was a little bit more narrative-y, um, but it was really hard, um, especially trying to explain in a narrative way what was going on inside the hospital because so many people were, you know, afraid to talk and attribution kind of became uh, tricky. Mm -hmm. um, you, you ended up in a fashion, you told the narrative of the Johns Hopkins era, I think, at All Children's. You told the, the you know, this and, and sort of where, um, what the surgery program had been at one point and then how it 
evolved. So, I mean, it's like a small within the the larger, and then you know, you you, yeah. you wove in some of these examples. I guess we did. Involved. I hadn't thought about it. That well, way, I mean, that's yeah. that's in mm-hmm. to a fashion. I mean, it is a story of an institution, and, right. and it's a story of an institution and what what went wrong. And like you were saying, that's what you were trying to get at. What happened here? What changed here? Right, because then the Heart Institute is really the main character. Right. right. In many ways. Not, yes. Not the kids exactly. themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And with the with the kids, I mean, you know, the, another approach could have been to focus on one of the children, um, you know, but I, this story made the most sense to me um, as kind of using all of the kids' stories to kind of show this program in decline rather than just one that had gone so horribly wrong. Because in a medical setting, one surgery can go wrong. You can have the best surgeon, you can do yeah. everything perfectly, but sometimes, you know, the body does what the body wants to do and the surgery goes wrong. But when you can put them all together and establish that there was a pattern of surgeries that had gone wrong, it felt like there was much more power in that um, rather than kind of, you know, starting with uh, with a very, you know, clean-cut story of one kid. Um, but when we thought about structure, we, we followed... Um, a formula from our executive editor, Mark Ketches. And I hope I'm not, you know, speaking out of turn. Like, I don't know if this is his secret sauce or anything. Um, that's not for sharing. Um, but but very, you know, it's very traditional, kind of starting with the framework for the story, um, you know, establishing. Starting with the aberration. Yeah. The, the, uh, actually, a week that was an aberration mm-hmm. or maybe not, uh, you know. Right. Yeah. And then and then moving in with your nut graph and kind of establishing, mm-hmm. you know, that framework and then moving into the foundations. Um, so, you know, giving the history of the place, how it had come to be at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, then elaborating on the investigative findings. Um, which we did, and and kind of following, you know, there were bullet points in the top, so kind of trying to follow <laughs> those bullet points, and then moving forward and looking to the to the future. Those are all F things. It's his four F method. <laughs> name, name them again. Uh, this, Lane's putting me on the spot now. Okay. Four uh, yeah. F framework. Findings. Found, found, foundations. Foundations. Then findings. Then future. Okay. If I've got this wrong, it's going to be really embarrassing. So, <laughs> um, and I think you know you used the different examples or some of your examples to illustrate some of the points. So, a uh, one family situation kind of came into play. You know, you, you you brought that vignette into play where you needed it to to illustrate something. Um, it's been it's a it's a really devastating read actually, whether you're a parent or not. It's just that you just feel this sort of sense of um, betrayal, really. I think it's something else you guys did really well was, and, and I agree, I needed more than one example because going into it, knowing what you were working on, I kept thinking, a lot of these kids are probably going to die anyway. You know, like they're right. so fragile, so many things are wrong. So showing how it, it was repeated again and again with these different children was literally heartbreaking, but really I hammered the point home well. And the other thing that, that surprised me because I didn't realize this was part of it till I read it was it wasn't just what was going on within the hospital. It, within the Heart Institute, it was the hospital knowing it and covering it up or deciding not to do anything about it. And to me, that really elevated the culpability of the entire institution. You know, it wasn't just some one or two crappy surgeons doing their thing. Right. Know? There was a moment when uh, a number of the physician's assistants who work in the operating room beside the surgeons, you know, had called for a meeting with, with high-level hospital administrators to say, this is a huge problem, you know, and express concerns they had over surgeries that were going wrong. And this was in December of 2015, um, you know, and it and it took the hospital until 2017 to slow some of the surgeries and until the end of 2017 to remove one of the surgeons from the operating room. 
Um, let's just end on one point of like, okay, so how did how do you how do you get people to trust you? Like, so the first pe- person reaches out because they see your name in the paper and they they know you cover hospitals or you know healthcare, um, and then you're approaching some of these people. Um, I think this is a challenge for both of you. You know, how do you get people to to agree? And you know, what is that process like, especially in something this devastating? Um, I think it was a little bit different for the families than it was for the for the medical professionals. Um, you know, for the families who we were talking to, um, going there rather than approaching them by phone. You know, right. actually making time to sit in their living room, spend some time with their children or their other children, look at their photos, hear their stories, um, and be very transparent about what our process was, you know, how long it might take us to get a story in the newspaper. We will keep you posted, letting them know about developments, taking calls from them when they had calls or questions, um, just really engaging on a human level. Um, With the medical professionals, it was a little bit um, it was a little bit different. I think we needed to prove that we were serious about the story. And that kind of took repeated phone calls and reaching a point where we could walk the walk, uh, being able to talk about the complex heart surgeries, knowing the names for all the heart defects, um, you know, just proving that we were, were really serious about this. And you knew what you were talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And that we weren't going to gonna botch anything on the medical side of things, Um that, that, that really, really helped. Okay, so if you have a question for Kat or Lane, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.